0: Church, today we are finishing up our Promised Land series and there's been a little bit of a question. Why do we keep showing the same bumper video that says the Exodus when we're not in Exodus anymore? Well, the concept is is that we're still talking about the Exodus, if you will, of the Israelite people as they walked out of Egypt, walking into the Promised Land. And today we're going to pick up Deuteronomy chapter 30. And what's going on here is Moses is in the very first sermon series of Scripture as he's trying to go through a couple sermons in order to prepare his people for the promised land. Now what's interesting about that is that Moses wasn't going to go with them, so this is his parting words as he knows that his time is short, he's not going to walk into the promised land with his people, and the people that are walking into the promised land are not the same people that he started with, correct? Remember that Moses started with a different group of people, and because of their sins, God says that they themselves wouldn't enter the promised land, but rather their descendants, their children would. And so the culture of Deuteronomy 30 is a little bit different that we see early on in the exile of the Israelites lights as they walked through the desert, because these people, I think they got it. I think they understood it just a little bit more than their ancestors did. See, what we're going to talk about today are decisions, choices, life or death choices, eternal decisions that make an eternal difference. When I think about choices, there's one story that keeps coming to mind, and I don't know if anybody's ever heard of a man by the name of Larry Walters, Larry Walters, or better known as Lawn Chair Larry, in 1982, in sunny Southern California, Larry Walters was sitting on a lawn chair and had an idea. There was something he's always wanted to do. He wanted to be a pilot all throughout his life, but he never was given that opportunity. So before he died, he decided he was going to do what he could to take flight. And so what he did with him and his, at then time, girlfriend, they bought 45 weather balloons. True story. They bought several helium tanks, and they strapped the weather balloons to the helium tanks. And then he, in turn, set onto a lawn chair and tied all of these to his lawn chair. Now, one of his friends decided that they would strap the lawn chair to a Jeep until it was ready to take off. But before they did, he went and got a few necessary items, I guess is the right way to say it. A few sandwiches... A uh, pellet gun in order for him to control his descent, and a six pack of beer. He then loaded up, cut the cord, and he shot like a rocket 16,000 feet in the air. 16,000 feet out of nowhere he was in international airspace over Long Long Beach International Airport and he was spotted by two commercial airliners and no joke could you just imagine what they said on the radio this was reported they get on the radio and they say yes we have a man in a lawn chair drinking beer 16,000 feet in the air What an awkward moment for everyone involved. Could you just imagine how strange that was to see this man that high? Well, then he decided he was going to have to start shooting down some of his balloons because he was getting way too high. He was actually getting to the point where you were going to lose oxygen. And so he starts to go ahead and shoot some of the balloons. But he made a mistake and dropped his pellet gun 16,000 feet. So over time, he eventually landed, but when he landed, he actually took out numerous power lines that caused a blackout over Southern California. And in 1982, when they finally caught him and asked him, why in the world did you do this? When all of the media surrounded him, which at that time he was in handcuffs, why in the world did you do it? His response was, it was simply something I had had to do. Something that I had to do. Now, for some reason, this man, on his mind, before he died, he had to strap balloons to a lawn chair. Like, I just don't understand why, for some reason, that was something he had to do. And it got him so motivated that he did it, knowing that he was going to go to jail, but also knowing that he very well could have died doing that very thing. Here's my question. Can we have a desire to follow Jesus and it be something that we simply have to do more so than lawn chair Larry has to get up in 16,000 feet in the air? Like, I'm just wondering, can we have more of a crazy heart to follow Jesus? Can we be more crazy about following after the Lord, throwing off every weight that binds, throwing off every sin, not caring what anybody has to say? Think about us. And pursue Jesus with everything that we have, more so than lawn chair Larry. Like, I think Christians are supposed to look to the world like lawn chair Larry looks to us. Crazy. Insane. Risking it all for something so silly. Unbelievers should look at Christians that way. The problem is, I don't think unbelievers have enough true, like, soul-out-on-fire Christians to look at. I think the world needs to see more Christians so passionate about the Lord, so passionate about God's word, doing everything they can to look bold and audacious for Jesus that we put lawn chair Larry to shame when it comes to boldness. My goodness, what would that look like? Today we're talking about choices, life or death, eternal choices. See, one thing we must understand today is that eternity is in all of us. Every single person was created with an innate understanding of eternity. See, all throughout history, we see all different people groups understanding a concept of eternity. There is life after death. We we see people like the Mayans writing about life after death. The Incas, if you guys have ever studied the Chinese culture. One of the very first Chinese emperors, when he died to prepare for the afterlife, he had over 8,000 terracotta soldiers made to protect him in the afterlife. 130 chariots, 520 horses, 150 cavalry. Think about that. You can go to China and see all of these figures, life-size sculptures, thousands of sculptures there because that one emperor understood there was an afterlife. He knew there had to be more to this world, more to his existence than just what happens on this little dirt ball we call earth. See, not only that, the Vikings, the Greeks, in India, they understand the concept of eternity. When I was in India on a mission trip about a year ago, I noticed one of the weirdest things that ever happened. We were in a car, and as we were driving in a car through downtown India, the traffic was crazy, There was all of these people, a big crowd came up, and they were screaming. They were chanting. Uh, There was a few people that had blood on their arms, and they said they were cutting themselves. And they were holding a dead body above their heads. And in their mind, that was preparing that person for eternity. They were doing what they could to secure that person's eternity We all have a concept. Every person, I believe, was created in the image of God enough so that they recognize that there is life after this. And what we do on this side of eternity dictates what happens on the next side of eternity. And as I sat there and I watched them, we were in the car, and the people were glaring at us. Because, I'll be honest, we were taking pictures. We were blown away what was happening and they were so upset and they were so angry to see these Americans watching what was going on, watching what they were doing. Here's what's interesting. It broke my heart because they're bleeding, they're dying, they're, they're hurting themselves. Not only are they hurting themselves, but also what, they are parading this body around that we know where that soul was. if that soul never gave their life to Jesus. And we see that all over The planet, the lostness of the community, the lostness of America, the lostness of the world. And God says that what we do on this side of eternity matters. See, as we look at this, as we look at Deuteronomy 30, chapter 11, we're going to see the ability to choose between life and death. Verse 11, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. See, that's interesting. Isn't it interesting to think that that's how this starts off? This commandment isn't too hard. Like how often do you see that throughout scripture? This you can do. Neither is it too far off. Verse 12, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Verse 13, neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Here's what's great. He says, it's not far away. It's right here, verse 14. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you can do it. I love that. That is such a compliment. It is here. It is close to you. And I believe that he's making a compliment to the Israelites because he's saying, it's in your mouth. You can do this. It's in your heart. What he's saying is things don't just magically appear In your heart. I believe that they had stored up God's word. They knew it. They understood it. He didn't just say it was in their mouth, he said it was in their heart. It became part of their being. They were studying God's word, they were loving God's word. I think that what's happening right here is Moses is complimenting them. He's saying you are making very much of the word of the Lord. You have gotten into the word, and the word has gotten into you. You are in a good place. I think that is a blessing. One thing I want for us to understand as a church is I want for us to know the word. I want for us to speak the word. I want for the word to come out of our mouths in natural conversation. I want for people, when people talk to us about our problems, for us not to give them Dr. Phil advice, but to give them the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords advice and start expressing that as truth rather than the self-help books that we read. I think that that would be so much more powerful if we speak the word, but also if the word was in our heart. That's the only way it's ever gonna come out of our mouths. The only way it will ever come out of our mouth is at first, it's dwelling within us. We've made much of it in our alone time. We've gotten alone with God, gotten a word from God so we can give that word to others. You can never make much of Jesus until Jesus had made much of you in your alone time, in your quiet time. We get alone with God. We get with the Lord so that in turn, we can take what we're learning and give it to other people. They knew the word. They were speaking the word. The word was guiding them verse 15 see i have set before you today life and good death and evil if you obey the commandments of the lord your god that i command you today by loving the lord your god by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules then you shall live and multiply and the lord your god will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it you hear this verse 17 That you and your offsprings may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Church, we have an opportunity to choose life with every decision that we make. See, I don't know if you've ever heard that song, We Were Made to Thrive. See, I feel like so often we're just going through life one day at a time, but even the world says this, are you really living life to the fullest? Are you really living life to the fullest extent that God has called you to live it, that God has enabled you to live it, or are you simply going through the motions? I think one way to pull ourselves out of going through the motions is recognizing that every decision that we make, we have the opportunity to choose life, to make our decisions matter, our decisions can have an eternal impact. And if we go wake up every day recognizing that we have the power throughout our day to make an eternal impact for the glory of the Lord, I think it gives each day much more of a purpose. I think if we wake up in the morning understanding that this just isn't a normal every average day. This is a day that we can make much of Jesus where we can be a part of somebody going from death to life. I think that we live with so much more of a purpose, so much more with fulfillment. I think that's when Christians thrive is when we recognize there is no ordinary day when we're following after Jesus. There's no ordinary day when we pursue the Lord. See, one thing that's interesting is that so many people are afraid to say yes to Jesus because they think that that means that you were reserved to this mundane life. But pursuing Jesus means that you are committed to making your life exciting because you're pursuing a mission so much bigger than yourself. You are fighting something so much more than just simple battles. Rather, you are in a fight with principalities. Do we understand what's going on here? This is bigger than flesh and blood. We are in something deep. And when you say yes to Jesus, you're jumping into a huge, powerful commitment. But with that, it makes every day so exciting. But there's a lot on the line. How do we handle, how do we choose life over death? Well, we covered it already. We know the word. We speak the word. We keep the word. We hide God's word in our Our heart. We have the ability to choose life and death, but then we see this God who offers life and death, and sometimes it makes us question, how could this great, good God, who so holy and so righteous, but yet so loving, be compatible? Because if you've ever read the Old Testament, especially what we've been reading in Deuteronomy, it seems like God almost has two personalities, doesn't it? And what it seems like is we have this great, loving God that we see, especially in the New Testament. This sweet, loving God that sent his only son so that we could have a relationship with him. But then also we see the wrath of God, that when somebody touched the tabernacle or when somebody touched the Ark of the Covenant, they immediately perished. And we think, how could this great, kind, loving God also be just so holy and so righteous and this judge that has killed so many different groups of people because of their sin that we see in the Old Testament? And it's this It's this hard understanding we have to come to because we have this God that is completely holy, but yet completely loving. See, when I look at it, I think, what if God was simply all in on one way and not in the other? Like, what if he was just completely loving in the sense of all accepting? No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what your belief is, you would go to heaven at the end of your life. No matter what happened throughout your life, no matter what decision you made, I feel like that somewhat cheapens grace. I feel like what that does is that says that no matter what you do, don't have to pursue Jesus, don't make much of Jesus, don't love Jesus. But then what about on the other end of it? What about if he was so holy and so righteous, which he is, but with that he didn't have love in the mix? That means that not a single person would ever walk into the kingdom of heaven. We see this blend here, which is a beautiful thing. I'm glad that God is both and. I'm glad that He is righteous and holy, but I'm also so grateful that He is loving and merciful. Because what we see is this combination that says, "I love you how you are. Come to me just how you are." Lost people often I hear this. I can't come to church yet. I can't come to faith in Christ yet. I can't get close to Jesus yet because I've got to get some things in my life straight. Do do you clean off before you take a shower? Or do you just let the shower do what the shower does? That's something we have to understand today. See, we come to Jesus just how we are, and he loves us too much to leave us that way. I think that's the picture of him being holy and righteous, but also being merciful. He's saying, listen, I'm holy and I'm righteous, I'm perfect. You come to me as you are, and I will remove the problems from your life, sin problems, I will remove the sin out of your life through the blood of Jesus. And in turn, you can have relationship with me. That's how the righteousness of God and the mercy of God come together, through the blood of Jesus. As we get closer and closer to Easter, I think about this often. Let's look at this in Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty his way is in a whirlwind and a storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Numbers 14:18. the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, good news, but he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and the fourth generation. Exodus 34, verse five through seven, we read last week, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. But, mm, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See, what's so interesting here is we keep seeing this merciful God, but also this great judge. What flips the script? Jesus flips the script. He's able to have mercy. He's able to have grace because of Jesus. Jesus this is how the old and the new pull together as we are walking away from the book of Deuteronomy this week I want for us to understand as we're walking away from the exodus this week we must understand the mercy of the Lord and the holiness of the Lord are able to be compatible because of the cross Moses is trying to tell them three things here he's trying to tell them three things we all fail to live like we should but God's going to fix our hearts And the message of the gospel is going to go out. If you look at the beginning of chapter 30, verse 1 says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind amongst all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. What's interesting is it says, all these things has come upon you, the blessing and the curse I have set before you. He's saying the decisions that you're going to make, I've already set before you a blessing and a curse. A blessing and a consequence. He says, I know you are going to fail. You are going to fall flat on your face. He says that to the Israelites before they even get into the promised land. You are going to blow it. Like, I feel like that's such a fair statement. I think that God, like, if we could have had a conversation with him right before we said yes to Jesus, he would say that very thing to us. Hey, I'm so glad that you're giving your life to me. Guess what? You're going to blow it big time all throughout your life. You are going to make so many mistakes. You are going to look so foolish, and you are going to cause me so much hurt and pain and anguish. I am going to stress over, like, I just feel like he's like a parent looking at the child. I look at my child now thinking he is so adorable and cute, but also knowing he is going to be a point of so much frustration throughout my entire life. Like, I already recognize it because I know what I did to my parents. I know how bad it's going to get. I know he's going to stay out too late. I know he's going to sneak out of the house. I know he's going to lie to me. I know he's going to do stupid stuff. And I still love him because he's mine. And that's what God's saying here. He's going, listen, you are going to be so dumb at times. You are going to fall on your face and there's going to be consequences. See, me and my wife, we've already come up with like the consequence plan. It's probably going to be something we totally throw out. But right now, we think we've got it all figured out. Just please don't burst our bubble at this point. But here's what's great. God's saying, you are going to fall. Here's what I love about this. I'm so grateful that our God puts the bar high. But he also recognizes that we'll never make it outside of Jesus. Jesus was able to clear the bar for us. God set the bar high, but only Jesus is able to clear the bar for us. In Romans 7, verse 15, Paul writes this. Paul, the prince of preachers, for I do not understand my own actions. Listen just how human he is here. Listen how real this is. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, sin, sin. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's powerful. He says, without Christ, I cannot carry out any good thing. I fall on my face. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Do you recognize he's not talking in past tense? He's talking in present tense. This is Paul in the, like, the, the pinnacle of his ministry. Like, he is so respected, and he's saying, I mess up often. Verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sins that dwell within me. It's so interesting because Paul recognized, Paul knew that what he was doing was wrong before he ever did it. And I believe Christians, and I believe even unbelievers to a certain extent, know what they're doing is wrong before they do it. I think that we're all made enough in the image of God that we recognize somewhat of a moral compass. I absolutely believe that believers, when you give your life to Jesus, you have just enough of the Holy Spirit to convict you and make you miserable when you're outside of God's plan for your life. I truly believe that when you are living in sin, I believe that every believer has just enough of the Holy Spirit that they are walking in misery. They know it's not what God wants them to do and they are in a battle, a battle. They are in a fight that makes them miserable. See, What God's saying here is this. I know you're going to mess up. Paul messes up, but I love you through it. One of the most beautiful pictures I've heard of this is think about a child. When you're teaching a child to walk, how does that work? When you walk back just a couple feet and all you're wanting them to do is take a couple steps and they fall, do you get angry with them? Do you yell at them? Do you pitch a fit? Do you stand up and walk away and get so frustrated? Do you call them names? Do you turn their back on them, or do you pick them up, dust them off, and let them do it again? And every single time they fall down, don't you just keep doing that? Doesn't the cycle just be repetitive? Every time they fall down, don't you pick them up and let them restart? But for some reason, we have this picture of God that if we actually try to do something for his honor and for his glory, and we fail, he's going to get upset with us and get angry with us. And I think a lot. A lot of times that's reasons why people don't strive to do things that have eternal value. It's because we feel like if we fail, it would make God upset. If we strive, it would make God angry. If we try to do something that has an eternal result and we fail, then we're failing the Lord. You know what God does? He dusts us off, picks us back up. Every single time we sin, what happens? God forgives us picks us up, sets us back on our feet so we can go at it again. I'm so glad that we serve such a merciful Savior. He is merciful, church. He is so forgiving. Now, I have to say this because a lot of times when I preach this sermon, what people walk away with is just one little excerpt that says, all my sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. I can do whatever I want. If you are really comfortable and you believe you are claiming that you are a Christian, and you are okay with sinning because you know that Christ will forgive you of your sin, I question your salvation, and you should too. If you are walking in sin and you have no conviction of it, simply because you believe that God will forgive you every single time, and your sin doesn't bother you, I question your state with the Lord, and I think you should too. Because I believe that the Holy Spirit convicts our sin. In turn, when you live in sin, you should be convicted. Lastly, we see this. We see that Jesus will fix our hearts, and in turn, the gospel will go out. See, when Jesus fixes our heart, here's what he wants to do. He wants for us to replace our fear with a focus on him. He wants for us to replace our fear with a focus on Him. He picks us up, dusts us off, and He says, Do not fear failure. Focus on Me. When you're teaching a child to walk, what do you tell them to do? You tell them to come to you. Aren't you trying to make eye contact? You're trying to get them to focus on not where they could fall, but rather where they're going. Hey, don't look at the ground. Look at me. Look at the destination. You want to know why so many people don't grow closer to Jesus? Because they're never looking at Jesus. You're looking at the world, you're looking at sin. You will always end up going where you're looking. See, I I think it's important for us to recognize when you fall in love with the world, you're going to end up looking like the world. But when you fall in love with Jesus and you fix your eyes on Jesus, and when you fix the eyes on the cross, that's where you start to turn. Church, when we turn our eyes, when we fix our eyes on the cross of Christ, when we focus on where we're going rather than where we could go, when we focus on the success in our goal rather than the potential of failure, we end up getting to our goal. Now, we might fall down throughout But trust me, every single time we fall pursuing Jesus, he always picks us up. See, God wants to fix our hearts, and he's saying this to the Israelites. God wants to fix our hearts, but not just fix it. He says he wants to give them a new heart. He says earlier on in 30, he wants to do a heart operation on them. Make them better. Make them more Like him, he says, I don't want you to be your old self. I want you to be something completely different and new. God says that when we come to faith in Christ, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. See, one of the reasons why Christians aren't pursuing Jesus is because you won't let the old pass away because you won't forgive yourself of your past. If Jesus can forgive you of what you did, who in the world are you to hold it against yourself? Verse 11, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard, neither is it too far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, whoever go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. So you can do it. As Christians, why can we hold on to the word being near to us? Because Christ came and brought it near to us. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus came himself, brought the word to us. The word is near us. We have the Holy Spirit residing in our hearts. Church, in a moment, we're going to offer up this altar. But before we do, here's what I would like for us to do. I want for you to... Take the next few moments during the altar call for all who have already accepted Christ. We're about to partake of the communion of the Lord's Supper. And when we do that, what I'm asking of you is this. Would you take the next few moments and simply ask God to investigate your heart? Would you ask him to to check out your heart and make you aware of any unconfessed sin? I ask that you would take the next few moments to confess sins to the Lord. Ask God to make you aware of your shortcomings so we can do this and we can do this correctly, we can do this rightly and we can do this in the way that the Lord intended. For those of you that have any questions about your salvation, where you stand with the Lord, would you please, myself and Jeremy will make ourselves available, have boldness today. You do not wanna walk out of this room without being in good standing with the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to draw near to you. God, I ask that today, as we have been in your word, as if we have strived to get into the text and understand exactly what it's saying, God, I pray that you will remind us to make much of your word. God, I pray that your word will be in us. It will be in our mouths, but it will also be in our hearts. It will become who we are. God, I pray that you will revive our hearts to study your word more intensely this week. So we can know you better, but then represent you so well, Lord. God, I lift up the next few moments as we get closer to this time where we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper and what it represents. God, I pray we will not take this time lightly, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray.